My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. My guest today is Professor Brian Boyd. Brian is a distinguished professor at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. His work has appeared in 20 languages and has won awards on four continents. But most importantly for our conversation here today, Professor Boyd is the author of On the Origin of Stories, which is a book that looks at the evolutionary origins of story by examining the connections between evolution, cognition, and fiction. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. I, by the way, I am speaking from the future. I'm, I'm tomorrow by your standards, so <laughs> it seems appropriate. That's fantastic. Yes, indeed, you are speaking from tomorrow. 16-hour time difference. Okay, so, Brian, why do you think any of us should even care about story? Uh, the, the thing is that we can't help but care about story. It's uh, it's in us from the the moment we understand language. I think, and perhaps even before we understand language, uh, children w watching things move around on a screen will be captivated. Um, it, we don't have a choice. It's it's just deeply inbred in us. I think. Uh, in, innate, uh, I would have to say, yeah. Lisa Cron says that we are, quote, wired for story, which is the title, title of her book. So I, I totally agree with you, of course. And perhaps before we dive into the very details about story and especially its evolutionary origins, let's talk a little bit about Brian's story. What is your story and how did Brian Boyd discover story? Um, discover story as, as something to to write about uh, from an academic point of view or discover story as a, as a child? Both, perhaps, because I think they're both perhaps connected. Yeah. Um, well, curiously, my, my memories of uh, childhood uh, stories are, are not all that rich. Um, um, I suppose my parents read stories to me. I remember being interested in uh, Bill and Ben, the flowerpot men on BBC radio when I was in, growing up in Belfast. Um, but uh, we, we, we lived, when, when we came to New Zealand when I was five, we lived in a small town called Foxton Beach, a 700 population, uh, no, no public library, and uh, my parents didn't have many books in the house. So I read a few, um, oh, I, I think it was... Um, the Bobsy twins and, and uh, the famous five, things like that. Um, when, when we moved into Palmerston North, where uh, I stayed through my high school years, which is a town of about 70,000 now, um, I started frequenting the, the local library, but my parents also had a, a little corner store, convenience store, um, where it was my duty to check off the magazine orders for our regular subscribers. And I would read every magazine 
uh, as I was supposed to be checking them off. So uh, it would be schoolgirl comics, uh, um, war comics, uh, anything. It, it didn't have to be comics, but uh, you know, uh, multi-part encyclopedias, whatever. I, I would just devour it. Um, and I think that got me uh, got a, got a, a very high dose of story into me quite quite quickly. Um, I kept on looking for more sophisticated things gradually at the uh, local public library. And uh, um, let's see, oh, I became very interested in Nabokov in my last year at high school, and then uh, in my first first year, second year at university in John Bath, um, the the, novel, the American novelist who was very interested in the origin of story from a, a kind of literary point of view. Um, so he would, uh, he, he was, he was a librarian at, uh, when he was a, a student and uh, was, was fascinated by the, the Sanskrit ocean of story, which is in, I don't know, a hundred volumes or so, uh, with stories within stories and, and, and so on. And he works his own stories, especially his later stories, uh, in, in ways that uh, reflect this. And, and so I became fascinated with the origin of stories in that way, which is quite a different kind of way from the way I later got onto it. So you got interested in fiction first. And where did the, the, the sort of academic interest come into, uh, and especially perhaps the, the framing of that interest within the, the theory, Darwin's theory of evolution? Okay, well, um, I did my PhD on Nabokov at, at Toronto, um, and uh, also at, at the same time got very interested in Karl Popper, whom I'm working on a biography of now. Um, Popper's interest in evolutionary epistemology appealed to me incredibly at that early stage, and by the time I got an appointment at the University of Auckland in 1980, I was reading uh, science a, a lot and reading, say, Stephen Jay Gould uh, and uh, perhaps a little later Dawkins. Um, in the in the 80s, I was mostly working on Nabokov's biography. When that was finished, I was going to do a book on Shakespeare, uh, but uh, my work wasn't uh, fashionable enough. It wasn't interested in postmodern theory. Um, I'd been immunized against against that, I think, by both Nabokov and Popper. <laughs> and <laughs> um, so, uh, let's see, there are a, number, a couple of things happened in very close uh, succession, although they weren't related. Uh, a, a friend suggested that I read Stephen Pinker's The Language Instinct in 1994, and I became interested in evolutionary psychological explanations of things. And I think it was perhaps in 1993 that I read Spiegelman's Mouse and uh, immediately saw, wow, th this, I, I want to teach a course in, in narrative um, that covers as many different media as possible, uh, covers as wide a historical range as possible. And uh, I started to put my, my course in narrative and my, interest, my developing interest in evolutionary psychology together. Um, I didn't actually work on it until I, I did one uh, I was I was teaching 
Jane Austen as part of this narrative graduate narrative course, and I did apply evolutionary psychological ideas to that in, in a way that I think now are perhaps a bit crude. Um, but uh, in I, I then got a, a fellowship to start the Popper biography and was trying to work on that, but uh, still had lots of Nabokov material to to get out of the way. And then somebody uh, invited me to speak on a on a panel with Steven Pinker in, in the Arts Festival in Wellington. And uh, I thought I'd better brush up my my knowledge of evolutionary psychology. So I, I did, and I, I woke up thinking I, I had a brain, brainwave I could write a book on the origin of stories uh, in, in six months. I have written, I've written books in six weeks, um, but that's on Nabokov, on whom I know a lot. Um, and... Uh, I said to my wife, I'm going to be diverging from, from the Popper biography. I'll, I'll do this. Uh, I'll get it over within six, six, six months and get back to Popper. But it took about uh, eight grueling years uh, chasing my tail, it felt like, for most of the time before I finished uh, on the origin of stories. And, uh, and then there was an aftermath to that, so I wrote an, another book. Uh, I was going to write a, a sequel to On the Origin of Stories, uh, taking examples from Shakespeare to Spiegelman. And I started with, with Shakespeare thinking I needed to deal with his, his sonnets, um, and, and that was going to be a chapter in this book. And uh, it turned out to be a book in its own right. So That's yeah. how it usually works, right? We tend to... Yeah underestimate the challenges and which is why we jump in and then we figure out when it's like we're we're neck deep that there is no way coming back right that's what happened with my own first book and now with the second book uh, i crashed my first book probably in about uh, one month uh, and it kind of almost destroyed me f physically uh, i mean i was doing research for it for about seven or eight years but i actually did 90% of the actual book work in about a month. Um, and then uh, my wife asked me not to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the same with the book that I wrote in six weeks. It destroyed my nerves and my back. So, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And then I decided to write a book uh, on story uh, for a change, on rewriting the human story. And so here we are talking to each other today. And by the way, uh, your book on the origin of stories would play a major part in my chapter on the biology of story. Uh, so I really appreciate that. But just to, to sum up our kind of personal part of the conversation about who uh, Brian Boyd is, if you were to sum up yourself in a sentence, who is Brian Boyd? Are you a storyteller? Are you a critic? Are you a professor, an academic? Uh, somebody with a lot of curiosity that I've had the opportunity to pursue in as, as far as I can, uh, a, a blessed opportunity in, in all sorts of different directions that don't connect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally relate to that myself because my curiosity is also kind of very inconsistent perhaps in way all over the the place. Uh, and while that's very easy to critique, I venture to, to say that it's a lot of fun and I'm loving the ride. It keeps you refreshed. 
It it exactly right. It's always interesting. It's always fun, and I'm always looking forward to it. So it's it's fantastic. Now, let us go into the meat of the matter here, though, and let us start talking about story. So, like any proper scientific conversation, we have to begin by defining our subject matter. So, what is story, Brian, and how do you define it? Well, actually, um, I'm working on Popper's biography, and Popper insists that definitions are unnecessary. He hates definitions. <laughs> and I've come, <laughs> come to be uh, a little of that ilk myself. Um, I mean, story can mean anything that's related uh, of concrete events. I think uh, it, it, it's usually told as if it's in the past, even though it may be set in the future. Um, let's see, I've uh, so I would say a, a report of a um, specific set of, of events, that, that, that would be about all you would need, really. Um, so, uh, and in order to be worth telling as a story, of course, it has to be uh, something a little out of the ordinary, a, a mere a routine description of your going to the local supermarket and coming back would, would be of no interest, not even to your wife, probably. But... Um, uh, something if if somebody behaves freakishly at the at the supermarket, it may become worth a story. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, um, something that is a mere description of absolute routine that is generalised is 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 again not quite a story. It's it's a it's a pattern, but it's not uh, it's not individualised enough to be a story. Mm -hmm. uh, let me venture. Uh kind of a, a definition that, that I'm kind of working with and, and offer it up for your critique because you're much more experienced and you're a distinguished professor. You've done fantastic work. So how about this and see if it's going to make sense to you. My working definition is that stories an information processing technology. It's first, it's about information because there is a transfer of knowledge or information or data from one person or to another, from one generation to another, from one place to another. Secondly, it's about processing, because as you said, it is not a mere description of the event, but he has to have this kind of a surprising element, this kind of counterintuitive element, and it usually has to have some kind of a moral of, a, of the story, some kind of a point that perhaps we didn't even expect, somewhere in the subtext, something that we take away with that goes beyond the sum of all the, all the data that, that is contained in that story, right? So that's the second part. So it's about information, then it's about processing that information, and finally it's a technology because it's a kind of a invention or a creation of the human mind. It does not exist outside of our imagination. It is not a material object that exists in the universe, but it's a child of our minds. It's a child of our imagination. It doesn't exist out there in the universe. So, and of course, I go a lot more of unpacking that, but does this make sense to you at all? And how would you critique it? 
Well, the the last comment that it doesn't exist outside our head. You're talking about fiction here, and right, uh, and I, I think if you're accounting for a story, you also have to account for nonfiction, for for reports, gossip. Uh, history, legend, uh, which may include elements of fiction, but they not, may not be considered as such. Um, so, it it may exist outside your head. The what what, what you're describing may have been a real event, and yet it can still be a, a story. So, uh, we have to be clear when story story is uh, is a vague term that can include fiction or it can include other non-fictional yeah. narratives. I differentiate it from chronicles for example because chronicles are a mere description of events. But that's the birth of history. The birth of history is when we go beyond mere chronicles merely describing what happened but actually ascribing a meaning that goes deeper and further than the events themselves, a meaning that helps us connect the dots, right? And that's where I say the processing comes in, and that's where I say it's also a child of our imagination, because the events and the objects in the universe do exist, they're objective, but the interpretation, the moral of the story is subjective. Yeah, uh, the you seem to be implying that there's a, a moral put in there by the teller and that it's necessarily conveyed to the audience. I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's what you, you're implying, but, but to me, um, people interpret stories in, in so many different ways. Uh, obviously, storytellers shape them to elicit a certain kind of response, but Audiences interpret them in ways that matter to, to them, uh, and they may they may take all sorts of different levels of uh, implication out. And I think that's one of the the fascinating things about stories that it can they can have uh, you know, a psychological aspect. That this is this is how uh, how people think uh, a, a kind of behaviorist element. This is how people act. Uh, and and it might have a moral implication. So this is how people uh, should act and or, or do act and get punished for and, and so on. So um, I, I think that the range of implications from stories is very, very open-ended, uh, e even though <laughs> I suppose as, as a critic I tend to to go for an authorial interpretation. But, uh, but I think... Yeah, um, the, uh, there's an example, maybe you wanted to come back to later, but uh, in my book of the uh, a famous uh, video uh, film by two psychologists, Heider and Zimmel, in 1944, which shows three moving shapes and one stationary shape in a black and white movie that's only about a minute and 40 seconds long, um, two two triangles and, and one circle. And they move about on the screen. Uh, the, the stationary shape has a, something, a, a flap on it. Um, and virtually everybody sees it as a story of uh, two friends or perhaps uh, two, two partners, uh, romantic partners, who, who meet a bully who... A love triangle. Traps, 
yeah, the, 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 the big triangle is, is the bully and the, the smaller triangle is the partner of the circle. The circle gets trapped inside the, this uh, shape with a, a flap, which, which we re read as a house. Um, and and vir virtually everybody reads it as, as a, that, that kind of a story. And that's exactly what the, uh, the psychologists intended. And they were trying to show how, how, enormously we, how, how enormously richly we infer from very, very minimal evidence. So we identify these as, uh, as people and uh, identify them as different morphs of people, if you like, so male and female. And uh, some people, I, I've, I've done this in my class, and I was, uh, I was a bit aghast when um, one, one student in particular saw it as a, a, a father about to beat up his daughter. And this is a, 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 a woman student. Um, so... Yeah, but this is an example of both how uh, convergent interpretations can be and how divergent at the same time um, that, that somebody can come up with that kind of a response. Yeah, I think that example that you have in your book, which is a famous, famous example, shows our proclivity to create stories even there aren't ones and to ascribe meaning to... Uh, perhaps uh, events that are not necessarily connected and that do not necessarily have a meaning for us in our world. Uh, to, to ascribe a, a cause and effect kind of a narrative or to, to invent it and to create it. A and that creates that proclivity for us to both create and interpret stories. But my, my definition um, wants to propose, while not denying that there is this kind of audience power to interpret freely, uh, my definition proposes perhaps or creates the space where both of those are true. So the author of a story, and, 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 I, and I wouldn't call that the Triangle movie a story under my definition. I would. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's very interesting. Yep. So, so maybe we can talk about that later. But I personally wouldn't. Um, I would give it as an example of our proclivity of the mind to create stories where there aren't any. Just like, for example, if you said you're probably going to have a cyclone uh, in your location today, if, let's say, uh, God forbid, your car gets stricken by, a, uh, you know, lightning... Uh, you can come up with a story that, you know, you've been a, 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 a bad boy and Zeus is punishing you as a sinner by, you know, with, with a thunderbolt over your car. Hopefully nothing worse, right? But, but that's the proclivity of us as a species to interpret the natural world around, it, around us and the things that we observe in the form of a story with a cause-effect kind of a narrative, Right, so even when there isn't a story, we make one. Yes, yes, I'd agree. But on the other hand, I think that um, I, I was arguing with John Gottschall, who's uh, a, a friend of mine who has written books on story. Um, he he interpreted he he thought that the Hyder and Simmel film was simply uh, a movement of uh, objects about a space without any design, but. It, if if that had been the case, nobody would be able to make a story out of it. It's constructed in such a way that people 
can infer, and that was that's been quite explicit by the psychologists behind it. Um, so that, that's why I see it as a story. Um, you, if you had random shapes moving about uh, a screen with, with no sound for a, a minute and 40 seconds, people would not be able to infer a story. They can infer a story because there are, there are clear kinds of movements in relationship to one another, proximity and, and distancing and, and spinning around and, and uh, approaching the bigger one, approaching the smaller triangle and so on, that we can't help inferring, as, as the, uh, the creators of the film intended, as human relationships. And I think certainly we over-read agency, and I think that's... that's that's crucial to uh, the, the whole importance of story, I think, and, and things like Zeus, um, things like religion. We overread agency terribly, but on the other hand, it, it pays for us to overread agency rather than to underread it. So. Absolutely. Uh, so, so, for example, one example that you give in your book is that it pays for us to uh, see the, the twig in the bush as a snake rather than the snake as a twig, because evolutionarily speaking, those who saw the snake as a twig didn't make it. <laughs> so, and those who did yeah. see the, the twig as a snake and run away did make it. So it definitely pays off. But let's go back on topic then. So what are the evolutionary origins of story? Okay. Um, well, I think first they they start with our being uh, very very social animals, very very interested in monitoring one another, understanding what others in our group are doing, and we can see that of course in in other primates like chimpanzees are, are very attentive to what the social dynamics. Um, so that's the key factor. I think our our ultra-sociality, if you like, our, our need to understand what others are doing and to be able to infer what they might do next and to, to think, uh, if I react in such and such a way, will what will the consequences of that be from this individual or in, in given this group dynamic within the, the group? Um, there's that. Uh, I, I go through the process of talking about uh, event comprehension in a, as a forerunner to story. So the way our, our minds, and, and not just human minds, but uh, other reasonably intelligent animals uh, can parse things into, into objects, into sequence, sequences of action and, and so on. So I, I build up the picture of, of event comprehension um, before going into the, the story, the, the account of uh, ev event transmission, if you like. Um, um, it, it seems likely that uh, humans were communicating fairly in, intensely f from perhaps about know, half a million years ago. Um, we don't know when language began, um, but... Uh, by that time, there is, by 400,000 years ago anyway, there's evidence of uh, fairly large-scale collaborative hunting, which must have involved planning and uh, strategizing. And 
Um, it, it, this could have been through gesture, uh, and there's a lot to suggest that the origin of, of spoken language was was gesture, that, that we first began to use gesture before we added sound. Um, and there's a, a suggestion that um, mimesis, what Stephen, um, Stephen Mythen calls mimesis, uh, in other words, imitating actions, uh, was a way of communicating information early on before we had language. And the evidence seems to suggest that, um, well, chimps, of course, are, are kind of notoriously but rather loosely described as imitators, but there are clear cases of, of chimps imitating another individual, say uh, a, a chimp individual who, who has uh, a limp and, and playfully behind this, this chimp's back uh, imitating it f for the sake of the amusement of, of one another. <laughs> um, in, in the human case, it, it seems likely that we were able to imitate simple actions and and, and enable others to understand the kinds of actions we were calling up through these gestures. Um, and, and probably we were, we were doing this several hundred thousand years ago. When, when language emerged, I think it would immediately have made uh, the capacity to, to tell simple stories. And of course, I, I, I expect that there would have been a whole series of, of gradually sophisticated, more, more and more sophisticated proto-languages before there was full language. Um, so it, it might have been limited. You couldn't uh, you couldn't tell a story like the Iliad or the Odyssey, even though it was a long time ago for us. Uh, another few hundred thousand years back, it would have been there would have been very very simple stories. Um, but uh, but I expect that there were. One of the earliest impulses for story was, well, simply communicating information. That I, I saw a uh, a prey a, a, a prey beast um, in such and such an area. We could we could go there, um, or uh, perhaps some social information about uh, what somebody did to somebody else. Uh, so this kind of uh, gossip or information in the, about the near present would have become established uh, before, I think, we got into fiction. But on the other hand, uh, play exists in species, uh, uh, all mammals that have, that have been investigated, and reptiles, in some invertebrates. And play is certainly deeply ingrained in humans. And once you have uh, the capacity to tell true stories, then the, um, the that can easily mix with play into uh, children playing at activities and making up, uh, uh, enacting a, a situation for themselves and adults telling more elaborate fictions. So would we say that our best guess is that the first kind of stories came alongside um, language? Or would we say that stories actually precede language and precede our ability to uh, tell narrative, perhaps even with by miming and by gesture. I, I would think the latter. I wouldn't have at one stage, but uh, there are examples like a, a group of uh, Nicaraguan uh, deaf mutes who have no language, uh, and 
they don't have sign language either, but they mime stories to one another. And I think that that's a very, very telling example. It suggests that, yes, um, before we had language, we had an impulse to tell a story. I mean, they presumably, I, I don't know how much they're able to understand of, of stories on screens, um, say, but uh, may, maybe they've been primed in a way that our ancestors would not have been to to be interested in stories. But I, I think that our compulsion to observe one another and to try to infer um, motives and intentions and uh, and consequences uh, are so deeply ingrained that uh, stories would have been been used as soon as any possible means could have been found, and that that was even before language. Yeah, I, I to be honest, am not quite convinced by that argument because. Uh, for a number of reasons, but I also read a fantastic paper of yours that you so kindly sent to me, uh, and you finished, and, and by the way, let me just give them the title here. The, the paper is called The Evolution of Stories from Mimesis to Language from Fact to Fiction. Fantastic paper. I highly recommend it. Is it publicly available so that I can link to it? Yes, yes. Okay, fantastic. So uh, I'll link to it from our show notes. But one thing that you finish with in that paper, you say, quote, first we invented stories, then they changed us. You see, I, I find that very convincing because first we invent the tools, but then the tools... So first we create the tools, but then the tools create us. And so, for example, going back to that case of, of uh, Nicaraguan death mutes, uh, perhaps one way to explain that is that um, it's been now hundreds of thousands of years since our species has been using and therefore shaped by story and by our proclivity for story. And so after, you know, so many thousands of generations, even individuals who may be deaf and mute are still exhibiting proclivity to create those stories, even when they lack language, simply because that's how we evolved by that point. But rewinding the tape four or 500,000 years back, I'm not sure that those individuals had that kind of proclivity. In other words, what I'm saying is, I'm not sure if that proclivity for us to tell a story did not develop for the last 400,000 or 500,000 years, which would explain the behavior of those people. And perhaps our ancestors four or 500,000 years ago lacked it, and therefore, they couldn't do that without the narrative and without the language. Does that make sense to you? Yes, but I, I think given that that, uh, that chimpanzees say are, are so interested in in what goes on in their group, that one chimpanzee will will draw the attention of others to something that's significant that is happening, uh, and given the fact that that chimps can imitate other other chimps. I think it's very, very likely that in, in simple ways there would have been communication about things going on in the group uh, that were out of, out of sight to um, particular individuals so that if, if one person had access to good social information that others didn't, they would try to communicate it. Oh, and yeah. I think that 
that. I remember you had actually several very good examples of that in in your book. One of them was uh, about the chimp trying trying to warn the the alpha male chimp that one of the females was was actually mating with another chimp. So that other chimp was trying to get the attention of the alpha male and and trying to say, "Hey, man, come see what's happening here, right?" So, so, so yes, that that's a that's a very good point. So, so we can actually observe that 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 ability to to tell stories, perhaps, or to communicate anyway, even before we had that kind of language. Yes, it, it would have been very rudimentary. I mean, that's something that sure it depends on it happening in, happening in the present and and in close proximity. Uh, and and I think our our first stories would have been of that kind. They they wouldn't have gone far beyond the here and now, uh, and they would have probably involved very recognisable individuals within the group, and it would only become or 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 very stereotyped actions, I suppose. Um, it would only have become gradually possible to elaborate in, in ways beyond the here and now, beyond the the members of the group, and to invent freely. But uh, on the other hand, play does involve uh, imitations of uh, serious mode actions. And so I think children would have been, you know, as children played doctors and nurses or in, in my day, used to play cowboys and Indians. Um, in, in these these very stereotyped roles of opposition or cooperation, and uh, and they can elaborate them freely because the the templates are, are so accessible to all. Um, so I, I think uh, storytelling would have, uh, just like language, I think language may have been refined by by the younger generation, by children. Um, uh, as well as by adults pushing, pushing different kinds of boundaries further, and uh, so yes, it, story, stories would have changed us in at both the uh, the child level and and the adult level. So, are we then the only species, or are we not the only species in your view that that have that kind of proclivity to tell simple stories? Uh, we had the example of the chimps. Are there any other cases? Well, the only other clear case uh, is bees, if you like, honeybees, uh, who, who dance and waggle in a way that says, basically, uh, I will flew to a, a, a nectar source at a certain angle from the, the sun, and, and that uh, inspires other bees to go out and, and forage in the same area. Uh, but again, that, that's very tied to the present, and very stereotyped and, and very limited. There's, there's no flexibility there. So that's. Um, I, I was just uh, on a a respondent to uh, Bob Fagan, who's a leading expert on animal play, talking at uh, Harvard last week, and uh, he, he sent me a an email where he claimed that he'd he'd heard ravens talking. <laughs> To one another uh, in a, in a story like fashion, um, but it it's, uh, it was certainly how he read the scene. It, it, I, I think you know if you experimented, uh, you would find that you didn't have any data. <laughs> I'm sure, um, and but you know I suppose we we don't understand the the language or the the, the sound the communications of uh, 
quails and, and uh, parrots and, and other very vocal. Our pets sometimes tell us stories, perhaps our dogs, perhaps. They they certainly show emotions that uh, that indicate what may have happened to them recently, but yes, so we would have to do a lot of inferring, I think. Uh, um, I suppose, yes, it would be interesting to know how much uh, another dog, how much better another dog could infer the story that a dog is, is conveying through expression than, than we can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, do like, I do like to fantasize about a, a, a dog, um, uh, dog story since their, uh, their noses are so much more sophisticated than ours. Could they have a, a kind of, uh, if, if they could produce sm- smells as well as register them, could they, could they tell a kind of smellow story? <laughs> Where do art and fiction fit within that kind of a evolutionary framework within which you examine story? Okay, yes, I do spend a lot of time um, in on the origin of stories, talking about art in general before I get on to fiction in particular. Um, and that's because at that stage, I thought that it likely that... Uh, our proclivity for art preceded our proclivity for story. That there's there's evidence of uh, the likelihood of some simple forms of music, of uh, chanting and and uh, rhythmic uh, dancing or, or clapping uh, in in chimpanzees and and in in gibbons. Uh, there's quite quite complex uh, duetting amongst pairs. So it, it's very likely that humans would have been involved in, in simple production of sounds that we could see as precursors to music and uh, also in terms of marking, um, marking objects, uh, the use of ochre for body painting and so on seems to go back perhaps, um, perhaps a couple of hundred thousand, maybe 300,000 years. Uh, and and things like scarification. Um, so these these are very very early examples of art. Uh, and I ha- I had thought that it was likely that uh, this tendency this this fascination with with art might have might have arisen before we were we even had language. Now I, I tend to think that language probably proto language probably began. Um, at least as early as these early signs of art. Uh, but to, to talk about my, my description of art and the way it relates to story, uh, I, I see art as, as a kind of cognitive or social play with pattern. Pattern is, is something that we need to be able to process quickly in order to understand the world around us. As, as a lot of neuroscientists will tell you, brains are fundamentally uh, pattern re- uh, interpreters and, and they can interpret patterns at, at all kinds of levels because humans are um, our main advantage is they're not physical they're in terms of interpreting information we have a, a fascination with pattern that's much more intense than any other species and we play with pattern so we play with the patterns of colors play with the patterns of, of sounds and we also in 
in storytelling play with the patterns of of social information, if you like. And uh, so that's that's a key, I think, to if if you want to see fiction as, as an art, um, and rather than focus on on non-fictional narrative, then uh, then I think it does tie in very very closely with the the importance of play with pattern in music and in uh, in the various kinds of visual arts. But I think it goes beyond pattern, though, doesn't it? And that's where story comes in, because computers are very good pattern recognizers themselves. But the problem that computers have is they're unable to ascribe meaning to the pattern. And that's uh, one of the problems for that is that so-called AI frame framing problem, because AI lacks the frame that humans are born with, that we are wired for. Uh, they can see the patterns, but they cannot necessarily ascribe a meaning to the pattern. So, for example, we can see a pattern of an event. Let's say uh, there's a, uh, a lightning hitting the grass near me in the savanna and the fire is moving towards me. Now, that's the pattern that's evolving. I'm recognizing the pattern, but the meaning of that pattern is run run away as fast as possible if you want to survive, right? That's the, that's, that's the meaning. That's the, the, the information processing part, right? So you have the information of a lightning hit not far away from me. You have the information, there's a fire. And now, okay, what does that mean? It means that in five minutes, I'll be on fire if I don't run away from here, right? And this is where AI is stumbling. And this is what makes our story so useful and perhaps such a powerful adaptive evolutionary trait that you say that it is, that I believe that it is. Yes, we, we interpret patterns uh, hierarchically all at, at ever more and more uh, complex levels up to... Uh, up to understanding events, if you like, and uh, in, in ways that uh, are, as you say, biologically related to our situation, uh, they, they can't help me, whereas AI is just looking at, uh, it, 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 it can't ascribe meaning to any pattern. So, yeah, um, it, it, every, everything we see, we can, uh, we, we automatically relate to our interests and needs, we can't help doing so, and, uh, and Stories, whatever kinds of patterns they have, they have patterns of of character, uh, different different kinds of people interacting, uh, different kinds of situations, different kinds of intentions, outcomes. We we process that almost effortlessly. We we construe as as in the Hyder and Zimmel film that we, we see proximity as as signs of relationship, uh, and uh, and we read intent in, into just the distance the people are keeping from one another or the, the approach to one another, the, the fleeing. Um, we, we process things very, very efficiently to understand things in terms of the social information that's relevant to us. And that's because we are wired to do so. We are evolved to do so. Uh, and in other words, we are evolved to 
not only recognize patterns, but to ignore ones which are not relevant to our direct survival immediately, right? Well, they, yes, they, they barely come to consciousness. Yeah. Right, and the problem with AI is that it doesn't have this kind of a evolutionary, evolutionary luggage, if you will, or framework, perhaps is a better word, framework which, which tells it, ignore this information, ignore this data, and focus on this data only to make this kind of a conclusion. Uh, and because they lack that, and we haven't figured out a way to create it yet for them or to design them, to design it, they are literally could be drowning in data and be unable to ascribe meaning to it, which is the, the AI uh, frame uh, problem that you talk about in your book. Now, uh, let me talk a, a little bit about something else too, which story is very good at, and that's ascribing primary and secondary causes to events. So, for example, the primary cause of the fire in the savanna that I was describing could be a lightning. So I see the lightning hit the dry grass and I see the smoke in the fire and then I can ascribe a sequence of a cause and effect. So the cause is the lightning, the effect is a, is a fire. So for the beginning that's good enough. But then eventually once I run away from that dangerous situation and I sit somewhere under a tree and eat my bananas, I have lots of time to think and to process and then I can start thinking, but why did that lightning hit that particular spot of the savanna which was so close to me? And then I start unfolding and coming up with another overarching story about the bigger why, not the primary why as as per the lightning, but why lightning, why here and why me? Does that say anything about who I am and what I'm doing, right or wrong? Right, and this is where again, I, I, I wanna connect it a little bit perhaps with my original definition, information processing, right? It is all about the processing because we can't help it. We always tend to ascribe uh, a meaning of, oh, this is good or this is bad. Maybe Zeus is punishing me for my evil deeds. That's why he's throwing lightnings everywhere I go. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I think uh, as, as soon as we were capable of, uh, of story, we were looking for, for deeper explanations uh, and the because our minds are so wired for social information, we and, and because we we know that uh, that unseen things like our thoughts can affect others, uh, and uh, if if or we we can read the intentions of somebody on on another face and, and react accordingly without actually having been touched, uh, there's this tendency to understand any anything that you that is not immediately clear at a what seems like a deeper level. Uh, in in terms of some unseen agent willing something, and that's where religion comes in, and I think um, makes a, a huge impact on the power of story uh, through most of the early development of story. So that uh, there's been no human group being found without a religion, and there are this. I think what is that? A hundred thousand different religions they they estimate. Uh, have have arisen. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's just uh, it's just very very difficult for us not to understand uh, things in those story like terms. To see unseen agents, to overread agency, um, to to assume that if we have an explanation in, in terms of, of, of some some special being who has powers that beyond the the ordinary, then then we've got an explanation and. And people seem very satisfied with that because we are such social creatures. Uh, we understand things in social terms. If you've got that deeper explanation, then you don't need to go further. And, and that's why uh, it's taken science s such a long time to emerge because it means denying those natural inclinations to explain things in social terms. And you, you have to really challenge your your, your whole way of thinking uh, in order to come up with explanations that have have no spiritual or no unseen agents causing anything uh, that's why that's why the, the story of evolution was was so difficult for many to accept it was a lot easier to understand uh, god creating the world than to to think of a lot of random events happening in succession and evolution uh, i mean Evolution is a story, of course, but religion is perhaps one of the most powerful stories preceding the story of evolution, perhaps the most powerful story for hundreds of thousands of years, or if not hundreds, maybe at least tens of thousands of years preceding the story of evolution. The most powerful story was, was religion. It's a story that tells us who we are, where we're coming from, where we're going, how we should be living our life, what is right. What is wrong? It's giving us basically the whole textbook, right? We don't need to think or worry about anything. It's like a manual for living wrapped up in a story that's easy to remember, to associate with. And it tells you even what the rewards are if you're playing that story right and what the punishment is if you're not. That's right, and and uh, these stories can be incredibly uh, empowering in a way. I, I think of the Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginals, uh, telling these Dreamtime stories about the, the, the formation of the land, the local land, and the the resources there that that are just opaque to uh, non-Aboriginals inhabiting who, who come into that territory, and uh, and because these stories are so important for their survival. They have very elaborate rituals and, and very uh, complex initiation ceremonies beating these stories, if you like, into individuals so they will not be, be short of that information when they find themselves alone out in the wilderness. Uh, and I think in one place in your book, you give the example that grooming is the glue that keeps ape communities or ape societies together. So let me ask you this, is story in general, and perhaps for a very, very long time, the re religious story in particular, the story that kept the human society together, that acted as the, the glue for our human civilization? Yes, I think, uh, I think there's very strong evidence of that, uh, that... Uh, um especially if you bring in the theory of multi-level selection, that uh, at different 
a, a more cohesive group can outcompete a, a less cohesive group, and uh, a more cohesive group that may well be created by having a story that uh, unites them in, in terms of religion and values, uh, belief in a particular set of gods. Um, if if they have that, they 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 may be able to expand. Um, um, I think uh, I think non-religious stories too have the same function. That the vast majority of stories are uh, pro-social. They 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 will punish people who cross the the local ethical standards uh, and or often they're very very universal standards. So that the same story, um, you know, a, a Jane Austen story will will matter to to people in in Thailand or Brazil. Uh, it'll, it'll be legible enough, and the implication, the moral implications, will be clear enough. Um, in the, uh, I, I think all all sorts of stories are are ways of communicating to a group the values that they share, the kinds of costs that somebody's going to bear if they transgress those values. And because the stories are, are naturally arresting, because they, they often have, uh, in fictional stories anyway, you can have heroes that are larger than life, uh, actions that are, that are more extreme than everyday routines. Uh, the, the stakes are high. People will attend and they will know that others are attending in the group. Of course, all, all stories would have been uh, shared at, at one point in, in the group around the campfire. Um, people will know that other people are imbibing these same values, and that solves the problem of, of common knowledge. I I need to, to know that you ne you know these values, and, and so I can trust you to act on them. Uh, so in, in that sense, yes, stories are, are a very powerful glue. Mm -hmm. And and then let's see if story is adaptive, as as you claim in your book. Let us try to break it down even a little further. The, how it works, um, and I think in your book you give the the kind of the following framework. You say that the biological explanation of behavior must answer four questions. First is the why, which is usually pertaining to fitness. What is the ultimate function? Second is the how, which is the mechanism. How does it operate? What stimuli cause it to occur? Third is whence, or that's the phylogeny. That is to say, what are the evolutionary predecessors? What did it evolve from? And then finally, when, or the ontogeny, which is to say, when does the adaptation develop and change in the individual? So, can you walk us through those and see if we if we can sort of give our best guesses to those? So, I think we already started with with uh, okay. Let's start by with the why, because we covered some of them sort of, but let's lay them out a little more specifically. Why? Well, the the why is especially, I think, in terms of giving us good social information, so that we uh, and social information in in a highly memorable form, um, so that and of, of course we we learn a, a great deal from simply observing others, but there's that's limited to what a particular individual happens to observe, whereas stories are uh, are concocted in order to maximise attention. 
in, in order to dramatise particularly intense situations where big things are at stake. Um, and and they also uh, will be enlivened by a, a range of dramatically interesting characters. So uh, we will learn about the, the range of human psychology, the, 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 the kinds of consequences of particular kinds of actions, the, the moral, emotional effect on us of people transgressing particular values. We will, we will learn a great deal more through story about how the, the range of human possibilities, the range of, uh, of, of ways of acting and, and the consequences, and, and how to read those actions through story. So it's, it's basically a, a kind of uh, massive lesson in, in social cognition in, in a way that we, we find particularly appealing and, and actually irresistible. And that's why I defined, I, I gave you the definition that I gave you with the stress on processing. And that's why, and, and I'm very happy to hear that Jonathan Gocho agrees with me that the triangular circle story is not really a story in, in our world because it doesn't have those elements in it, but, but we kind of, we're tricked to fabricate them while they're not even present there, there at all. But... but, but, but... But there are elements there. There's, there's, there's bullying, antagonism, uh, a, a couple sharing sharing goals to escape from the bully, um, and you know the, the sense that the the bully is unable to control his emotion. He smashes his own house at the end. Um, but that's the interpretation. That's not in the story itself, isn't it? it? It's not explicit. But then we we always infer massively beyond the the evidence. Sure. Uh, and this is just an example. It's what the uh, the psychologists were trying to show. But uh, they they have supplied enough information so that we inferred in in particular kind of ways. Well, I, I think we'll have to agree to disagree on that one, I, and I'm happy that Jonathan Gocho is on my on on my side because oh, he came around when I when I yeah when I pointed oh, he, out that yeah okay he came around well maybe I can come around too we have lots to talk here so yeah let's let's talk about the, the second part though so we covered the why which is the fitness and the function now let's talk about the how the mechanism how does it work what stimuli cause it to occur. Yes. Um, well, um, this this is where I talked about event comprehension and about the the inbuilt uh, understanding of the the physics of the world, the objects in the world, and the, the social cognition that uh, that we have that it enables us to infer uh, emotions from expressions and uh, in, intentions from actions and so on. Um, so it's it's building on. Uh, the, the kinds of understanding of the world that uh, that other mammals will have about uh, about uh, objects and, and actions, um, but especially on our unique sensitivity to to human actions, uh, the the very sophisticated social cognition we have, which which I think is amplified as. Uh, as some people have pointed out, by even by non-fiction story, we in in non-fiction story, in in gossip report and so on, we get all sorts of information about other actions that we didn't happen to observe directly. So we're our 
our capacity for social cognition, our, the examples that we have to, to work with to understand how things work in the social world are amplified incredibly by story. And so um, story not only depends on our social cognition, but it feeds our so social cognition. So the, yeah, the, and the uh, way I, I have interpreted this is by saying that the most important feature of our civilization, perhaps its greatest invention, is not the internet, it's not the will, it's not certainly cryptocurrencies, it's story. Because there have been many civilizations without the will, without cryptocurrencies, without the internet, but none has ever existed without story. Because just like we gave the example that grooming is the social glue that puts together and keeps together the ape society. Story is the social glue that keeps together the human society and is the foundation for any larger scale one to become a civilization. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's the most important invention. I would, I'd say language in, is, is probably the most important, but it's it's an absolutely indispensable one for, for us to go beyond. Uh, it, it's, it certainly has made us what we are. Um, well, but if you were saying in your book that story precedes language, and now you said that you changed your mind most recently on that, but... That my my reasoning was that if if it's true to say that story, uh, based on the example of the death the deaf mutes from from Nicaragua or Mexico, that that story kind of precedes language, then it would seem that it's the first invention, wouldn't it? Well, I I think that story would have been very very limited without language. So sure, uh, language know, it, yeah, it would, it would be limited in, in the way the honeybees dance. Uh, it, yes. is limited without language. Yes. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, the 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 two interacted and uh, and exploded to make us what we are. I think yeah. Right, and that's why I was trying to to stress in my kind of counter argument to that was was an ex exploration of the feedback loop between uh, story on the one hand, language on the other hand, and biology on the third hand, because they're all kind of connected. Our story influences our language, and it influences our biology, which influences our language, which influences our story, and then it's like a feedback loop, uh, you know? So it's really hard to separate one from the other. They're all so fundamental. Yeah. Uh, and which is which is one reason why it's so hard to to uh, to really pin down an evolutionary explanation because there are these feedback loops going way back in time and you don't know what rudiment of, of which of these factors developed first and they would all have been rudimentary and uh, and interacting in in positive feedbacks from a very humble beginning. Uh, Absolutely, is, and that's why yeah. our answers to some of those questions, like for example, the third question is whence, which is to say, what are the evolutionary predecessors, when did it evolve, what did it evolve from, are basically our best guess, as you yeah. said in the beginning, four or five hundred thousand years ago, and so on and so on. Yeah, and and uh, if we had uh, proto-language uh, a succession of proto languages. I presume we have also had a succession of proto stories. So that you know, the, 
we we arrive at amazingly sophisticated stories in uh, the epic of Gilgamesh and, and in Homer, but uh, these these were absolutely unthinkable without without writing. I think and uh, certainly the well no sorry Homer Homer was uh, an oral poet, but he. He he used the mnemonics of, of verse in order to be able to remember twenty four thousand lines of story that he'd created, um, it, and possibly I suppose bards could have been telling elaborate stories if the social situation uh, allowed story specialists uh, even further back, um, but uh, but you can imagine that say, if, if we could time travel back to 100,000 years ago, I would be surprised if they weren't telling stories. Um, but the stories would have been fairly simple, I expect. Uh, and perhaps the, the most elaborate stories would have been religious ones um, in order to explain things and, and to to produce the social glue of the group. Right. So uh, what's your best guess that we have, like, about the, the 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 arrival of the story of religion uh as as a major story fundamental framework with which we kind of look at the world uh so we have Hesiod um and you know the, the greek myths and legends uh which are kind of like setting up the whole framework about how the cosmos works the universe works and 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 not not only how it works today but also about its origin, about its metaphysics, uh, uh, how it came to be, how, how it was born. Uh, so when do you think is, is, is your best guess we, we got kind of the arrival of that story? I, I, w I would be hard put to put a figure on it, but um, the, the, uh, the Aboriginal stories, say, in Australia, um, I, they've been they were isolated for sixty thousand years or, or so, and clearly their stories might have elaborated enormously between the time of their arrival in Australia and and uh, their first contact with Europeans. Um, but ISIS, they they have very very complex uh, creation stories and uh, and animistic interpretations of their environment and uh, of, of all sorts of causal factors uh, in the, the creation of the world, the creation of the local area. Um, and I suspect those kinds of things would have been the case a uh, hundred thousand years ago. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, they would have been further elaborated. And of course, it, took, it seems to have taken a long time to get to a, a monotheistic explanation that, that seems to have emerged only uh, about three or four thousand years ago. So the reason why I've been pushing that line is 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 the following though because relig to to use another definition of what story is um I'll bring Kenneth Burke's definition of story and he says that story is an equipment for living and and I think the best representation of 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 his claim is religion because the religions, religious story is the equipment, is the framework, which, as I said, tells us who we are, where we're coming from, where we're going, what happens to us when we die, what's right, what's wrong, who we should be married, 
uh, to what we should eat, what we should not eat, what's right, what's wrong, how we should worship the gods. Everything is spelled out for us, right? So it's an equipment for living. Now, the problem is, though, and you kind of feel free to critique and agree or disagree with me, the problem is that I think that our equipment for living is now going obsolete. It is falling apart. In other words, there is the divide between the real world around us as we can observe and see it and experience it is growingly growing further and further apart from the stories that we use as frameworks, as equipment for living that tells us what the world is all about, who we are in this world, what's right, what's wrong, and where we're going towards. And so uh, to, to, give you, to give you a better way of capturing that, um, I, I want to bring a quote from, let's see, where is he? A quote from um, Jonas Sachs. And Jonas Sachs calls this the myth gap. And a myth gap, in his words, is, quote, uh, and he has a fantastic book called, um, what is his book called? The Future Wars. No, The, the, the Coming Story Wars. Uh, uh, apologies. The Coming Story Wars. Fantastic book. Uh, and on page 58, he says that the myth gap is, quote, the space between the realities of our current moment in history and the shared stories to which we turn for explanation, meaning, and instruction for action. And so we have this myth gap, this kind of divide that's growing and growing. Our old stories are becoming less and less capable to tell, to explain what's happening around us, to connect to our life, to give us guidance of how to frame and address and what's the proper action to take towards resolving our problems. And so when you have this kind of a situation, when the stories start falling apart, you have chaos and you you may even have civilization collapse in some cases well i i think uh in in many ways science and uh just uh science and philosophy uh science in the broader sense not not, not any of the natural sciences but any kind of uh serious uh, attempt to understand the world is is, is re in many ways supplementing stories so that we we can uh, negotiate values now without invoking gods um, and clearly it's 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 fraught because we don't have the kind of guarantees that god provides we we have to explore things uh, and admit our our very partial knowledge of and understanding of everything uh, it is certainly more difficult without the the, uh, a Bible or a, a, a canonical set of myths to explain everything for you when you have to work things out. But I don't, I don't feel that uh, we're thrust in, into chaos quite yet. Uh, <laughs> but but I think science doesn't work in that way though, because science is a tool; it's a means to an end. It, it, it can it, be, but it, it can also be a, a means of understanding that is not instrumental, not merely instrumental. Uh, uh, but, but 
but how can it be because it doesn't it needs an outside framework within which it can assess things so for example um pulitzer prize winning uh tony morrison noted once that quote facts can exist without human intelligence but truth cannot albert einstein himself once said that there are no facts without theory and what's a theory a theory is a story so there are no facts without theory you need to have a theory first so that you have a fact and and finally uh whether we call it truth or theory we need a story to put those facts into a context into a framework that i was talking about that religion used to give us within which we can assess everything and that helps us being able to see them in perspective to rank and organize those facts to to prioritize them in in order of importance to give them a kind of a value of hierarchy we cannot organize facts by mere facts we need to have a framework within which those facts are being evaluated in in a priority order or hierarchy of importance and to make sense therefore of and to assign value to them and so it would seem to me that science without story really has no agenda no priorities no meaning no direction no value and no use because that's that's how science works you go into uh, uh, exploring a problem because you believe it's important or valuable so you start with that that's right i mean science science incorporates values and incorporates the values of, of truth it incorporates the values of of criticism of of listening listening to others of uh, subjecting your ideas to to testing and and so on it it's it's very highly social and it it embodies social values in in some ways in in the best uh best form we have um it's uh, i i i don't think of of science as being uh somehow sterilely removed from what is human it's deeply human uh, and it in involves the imagination it involves uh, the imagination to come up with a hypothesis to test a hypothesis uh, and it, it involves human cooperation and competition in in very fertile ways um, so i i think uh, it it's a scary situation for for some uh, which is why they they want to revert to uh, uh to a, a fundamentalist religion or an ethno-nationalism or something like that that, that but uh I, I think it it does require a, a sense of nerve to be able to face the world as it is and still insist that that uh the human values that are that that science can explain and that that science incorporates uh, are uh um essential to us so um say to take the example of, of climate change uh, it, it's something that the, the gods uh, are, are not equipped to explain i i don't think yeah but uh, but neither does science because science can tell us the facts about climate change it can tell us without any doubt whatsoever that the climate is warming it can tell us without any doubt whatsoever that we are the cause of it right it cannot tell us what to do about it so you have people who tell us great 
we, our values are the economy and jobs, right? Not that I agree with that, but they say, so you have people who say, look, we are the cause of the climate. It's the greatest challenge that humanity is facing. Therefore, we should change our actions so that we can minimize our impact on the climate and try to limit the damage as much as possible. That's one value-derived proposed course of action. Another course of action, which is equally value-derived, is saying, no, our priority is not the climate and it's not keeping the temperature to 1.5 degrees, but jobs and the economy. And that's our values. <laughs> and therefore, we can agree on the facts, but disagree on the, on the action. But, but that, that's, that's the same whether you've got religion or not. I mean, if you, if you look at uh, religious sects, religious wars in the, in the past, uh, you get different religions offering different values, different codes of conduct and uh, fierce contestation that, that's led to you know, the 30 years war in, in Europe and, and so on, um, or, or, or long brutal schisms and... Uh, the Crusades yeah. were for, for a couple yeah. hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. And another example that comes to my mind is perhaps the epitome of science of its day, surely, uh, at Trinity, when Oppenheimer was facing the first nuclear explosion on the planet, science was useless to help him frame and explain and communicate the phenomenon that had just occurred for the first time at Trinity. So what did he do? He said, I am become death, the creator and destroyer of worlds. So he went way before science to the Bhagavad Gita, to a story so that he can give a proper framework to the most advanced science of the day. And, and many of his colleagues, uh, by the way, uh, who are the founders of quantum mechanics, they were big readers and fans of, of the Bhagavad Gita and got lots of inspiration from the stories there that they kind of twisted and changed and tweaked to make useful in the science that they were doing. So in other words, you cannot get an, an ought from an is. The science can give you the is, but the ought cannot come from it, or, or so it seems to me. Yeah, I agree, but on the other hand, it, it need not come only from religion. It, sure, it yeah, it, but it needs to come from a story. That's what I'm trying to say. So it need not come from religion, but it comes always from some story. So let's say the Green Revolution. The story is we're running out of food in the 60s. We're running out of space. The, 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 the arable land that we have today is not producing proportionally enough food that is going to keep up with the proportional growth of human population. Therefore, we're going to be facing a crisis. Therefore, we need to invent a new technology or a new ways of producing more from the same amount of land and water that we've had before. And, you know, we invented um, uh, nitrogen fertilizers, uh, you know, the, what is it called? The, the Bach, uh, oh, forgive me, the German guy who also invented mustard ga gas. Uh, and he also was the co-inventor of the Bach method of 
creating nitrogen uh, or ammonia from air, which then was converted into nitrogen fertilizer and which eventually led to the Green Revolution, right? But the motivation is coming from the story. The prioritization of that action, the impetus, even if you want to call it this way, the agency came from the story, didn't it? I don't think so. I think it comes from from human values, which are related to uh, human problems and human values, which uh, underlie story, but aren't in, dependent on story. Uh, they, they're certainly... They Fritz Haber was his name, by the way. Just mm -hmm. occurred to me. Fritz Haber was the guy, the guy's mm -hmm. name, and the the process is called the Haber-Bach process. But it, it, it seems to me that uh, you know, human needs and, and values uh, precede story. They are incorporated into story. They are amplified and refined by story. But uh, I don't think we can say that story is at the beginning of of everything. That that we wouldn't have. Uh, value, wouldn't have problems and wouldn't have values without story. Uh, yeah. Okay, so how do we explain then the present situation that very unfortunately some people found themselves in? And that's a direct quote that I, I just got from, from the news a couple of days ago. Quote, I, I am being bombed every day and my mom in Moscow tells me that I'm mistaken. Um, so, so, yeah, there is a, clearly a false story being generated by Putin. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, stories are, are very, very powerful. I don't deny that. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the, the story of the, uh, the resistance of Ukraine, their, their heroism in withstanding the, the bullies next door, uh, are, are also inspiring people. Um, yeah, st stories, uh, if, if you manage to suppress any alternative stories, as Putin has done, it, it can be very, very powerful, unfortunately. I mean, aren't stories the most powerful thing of our civilization? And that's going going back to our previous uh, kind of discussion about whether it's language or whether it's story. My, my reading is that it's story because stories make us kill and die for. And stories make us, even in this case, like, for example, that I just gave, overrule or override the biological genetic connections between a mother and a daughter and the mother who lives in Moscow and is watching the, the, the Russian state TV propaganda refuses to believe her own daughter who is in the Ukraine being bombed and scared for her life. And there were so many cases like that. Another guy who was arguing with his dad, who is a priest in a monastery somewhere near Moscow, and his dad is also telling him, this is not true, you're being mistaken, the Russian soldiers are coming to liberate you. Yeah, well, uh, that, that's uh, one of the, uh, the the dark sides of story, in fact, that it can be used for propaganda. And uh, you know, we, we have tended to focus on the benefits of story, but yes, it can have very, very sinister sides. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, the, the kind of... I mean, I don't think it's either story or language. Putin is using language like scum to describe people in the West and the 
uh, in in Rwanda the the or in in Hitler's Germany the use of vermin and uh, cockroach and, and so on uh, uh, to to describe people of a particular race uh, just language itself as as well as story uh, can be used for the purposes of hate uh, I mean any any kind of tool can be used for the for positive or negative ends that's what your your friend and your colleague Jonathan Gocho talks about in the storytelling paradox how our love of storytelling builds societies and tears them down right so he warns us there quote story science reveals that everything good about story is the same as everything bad so to get good people to behave monstrously you must first tell them a story so the real question for Jonathan is How can we save the world from stories? So it would appear to me that he agrees with me that, that story is among, if not the most powerful thing on the planet because we kill and die for it. Yes, but on the other hand, um, the impulse to uh, to be belong to your group, to, to serve the causes of your group, I think precede story. Um, they're amplified by story uh, and and they can be per perverted by propagandistic stories but uh, I, I, I'm just reluctant to to make story the kind of universal explanation for for where we are that's very good that's very good because it give it gives me a very useful point of criticism towards my own work right now uh, because perhaps if you were, to qualify or capture where my current thinking is, is like story is the framework that explains most things in our civilization right now. It makes sense of everything. And there's pros to that, but there's obviously cons. And um, I mean, we, we uh, you weren't quite saying this, but we can't really explain things without story i mean even uh, there's there's a a uh, a scholar called root uh, uh, robert root bernstein i think who who talks about uh, the the way um chemists say imagine themselves as as little particles in combining and uh, we we use we we have to create a a story when we have an explanation. I mean, physics is, is so remote at, at one level from uh, f from human experience, but physics ha tells us the story of the Big Bang and, and of the, the future of the cosmos. Um, and w we can't help seeing things in, in, non -story, in, in story form. Um, it's... Muriel Rukeyser says that the universe is made of stories, not atoms. <laughs> Well, I would say that, that, that uh, yeah, that stories are already patterned, so. So, yeah, and, and, and so that's, that's very interesting, though. So, and that's why the framework that I was trying to push. So, do you not, do you not accept or agree with that kind of a myth gap that Jonathan Gotcho was talking about? Because my argument which I came up kind of independently, but then he uh, defined it so well that I'm kind of borrowing his 
his name, the myth gap, um, is a very good way to assess the current civilizational problems that we have currently today, which is why we're facing problems where, for example, like climate change, we have the science, we're very clear on how the mechanisms work, we're very clear of the consequences of our action, we're very clear on the consequences of our inaction, and yet we fail to mobilize sufficiently enough to take action. And that's because there is no kind of a popular framework or story that has gained enough momentum to push us towards one action or another. You have a diversity of mutually inclusive, uh, exclusive stories that fight. Well, part of, the, part of the problem is that, I mean, maybe you can see this as a, as a story problem in itself, is that um, climate change, like, like evolution, it uh, depends not on um, uh, individual actions that we can dramatize, but on a whole series of, of small-scale actions that together amount to a, a pattern that that uh, that is also long term. That long we tend to focus on the immediate future, and uh, this is the long term future. We've got many many problems to deal with in the immediate future. Uh, I, I don't. I think it's partly that we're we're not wired to understand the world in terms of long term consequences, and uh, and things of course get more and more unpredictable the, the longer term we're thinking of. So I think. Um, I don't think it's just a, a, a problem with story. I think it's a, a problem with uh, the, the fact that our situation, minute by minute, is, is complex, has so many competing interests right now. Uh, the, these are things that we should all share together, but we've never... Uh, the, the effort to combat climate change, but we've there are competing interests all around. Uh, they have... Some what some will will try to tell you stories like the the fossil fuel industry will try to tell you stories that uh, in fact we need uh, we need to c continue to produce oil in the short term or there'll be jobs, um, but I, I wouldn't say it's uh, it's simply a question of not having the right stories. It's that there are there are too many conflicting interests, too many uh, ways in which this particular crisis doesn't fit our natural capacity for dealing with things in the relatively short term. And of course, our politics too, uh, our election cycles and so on, are, are geared towards the, the short term. So, it, But that's uh, why I'm saying that our current story, which again, as Karen Burke pointed out, is an, stories as an equipment for living, fails to connect to and frame properly our current predicaments in a way that's conducive to their proper resolution. So, for example, the election cycles, that's a type of a story, which is entirely arbitrary, whether it should be one year, two years, three years, five years, eight years, 10 years, 50 years. It's arbitrary to a great degree. Uh, and again, if you have a, a popular story uh, that takes off, you would have this kind of a galvanization momentum behind it, just like religions, because any kind of idea, whether it's communism, capitalism, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam, Buddhism, is a kind of a story that took off, that gained massive momentum, right? Uh, Islam didn't exist. Muhammad came along, and in a couple hundred years, you had the Ummah, which was the greatest empire in the world at that time, spanning from southern Spain and northern 
Africa all the way to Indonesia, right? That's the power of a story. Uh, and that story told people who they are, where they're coming from, where they're going, what happens to them after they die fighting for the cause, etc., etc. But it created a viral effect of the story, which, you know, made it spread. And the reason why climate change, I say, hasn't worked is because clearly it's not viral enough yet. On the other hand, there, there are many, many apocalyptic stories being told. And... Uh... Now, this this is one way of trying to deal with the uncertainties of the future, but uh, none of them are. Uh, I, 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 there are so many competing stories out there. That that's one of the problems that uh, that it would be very hard for one story to get traction and to get buy-in from the whole planet. Uh, uh, Maybe not the whole planet, but sufficiently large number of people. So, for example, you have the story of Me Too movement. You have the story of human rights. You know, human rights didn't exist until probably the 18th century. There's a, a, a theory, and you probably are a lot more familiar with it, with it than me, that it was an invention of the English novels of the 17th and 18th century. It's a literary invention that eventually migrated into the social and political realm from the literally fiction realm. Um, and so, but that idea, that story about human rights, and actually there's even another idea even before that, that actually that idea about human rights was taken uh, by, by, by the first kind of North American settlers from the indigenous peoples of North America who had a lot more developed ideas about kind of decentralized society and therefore individual rights and how it wasn't necessarily might makes right like it used to be in Europe, but but rather it was a, a public discourse and public debate in which uh, a tribal leader was kind of elected on a sort of a temporary kind of a basis uh, and alliances were formed based on their kind of uh, oratory skill, if you will. And they had a lot more established ideas uh, about sort of individual rights, which were then picked up by the first settlers and then through the empire of letters sent over to Europe. And those kind of were the seeds behind the Enlightenment and so on. And correct me if, if I'm wrong anywhere here in in, and that's kind of a hypothesis, I guess. But that's a story. <laughs> sure, it's a story. Yeah. yeah. And but, but but regardless of where, the point I'm trying to make is that it didn't exist for most of human history, and then it suddenly sprang into existence, and now it's the established norm. Why? Because it's such a powerful story. So now, two hundred countries of two hundred countries accept, or most of them accept, the, the idea of at least in theory of human rights. Right, and we have many, many such examples of movements that start with one person, like the Me Too movement, one legal case, and then it suddenly becomes global. Uh, you know, a bunch of truck drivers try to drive downtown Ottawa, and then suddenly you have copycats in Washington or in a bunch of other places, because that's the power of story. And so what I'm saying is that if the story is powerful enough, whether you call it Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, it's going to take off like fire and get sufficiently enough 
part of the population, not necessarily everybody, but it will be viral enough to make a change. It would be it would be certainly to be welcomed if if, if we did have a, a, a galvanizing viral story about uh, climate change that would uh, that would bring effects. And it, I don't know it, it it may happen. I I suspect that we'll still have a, a lot of conflicting stories that uh, won't allow resolution very easily. So is this a problem then of having too many stories? I, I think that can be a problem. I think that you know uh, the, the benefits of stories that we had when we were around the, the, the hunter-gatherer campfire uh, are, are not the same benefit as having the absolute glut of the stories that we have now when there are vastly more stories than we can possibly expose ourselves to. And I do speculate that there's a, a problem that... Uh, that spending so much time in stories leads to a kind of intellectual diabetes where you know just just as uh, the availability of of high sugar and fat foods uh, leads to a diabetes epidemic I, I think there could be something similar happening to uh, the brains of those who gorge themselves on stories all the time uh, and but I don't know that there's any way to uh, to deal with that? I mean, we can't uh, censoring stories, reducing the number of stories we tell is not going to be an answer. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, on the other hand, we have had a lot of kind of a globalization of stories of 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 big stories coming in and subsuming all the other stories within them. Uh, for example, one such story is inevitably evolution right now we're looking at everything through the framework of evolution and and the story of story even is evaluated and looked at in your book and through the framework of of the theory of evolution so and in a way you could say that the, the evolution is another story isn't it oh yes yes it, it's it's not the kind of story that we're naturally attuned to because it it doesn't have individual agents prov uh, making decisive differences and it depends on accumulation of very small effects over a very long period of time so it's not in in one sense it's not very story like at all on the other hand it is uh, if you kind of speed up the camera and you you roll through uh, millions of years rather fast it it, it becomes a very animated story and isn't that kind of, in a way, you could say that it used to be the case that religion was the human story that told us who we are, where we're coming from and where we're going, etc., etc. And then at least for those of us who are non-religious today, the theory of evolution would probably be the framework or the story of what it means to be human. Yes, yes, I think so. Um... Um, we also have the, the the still larger story of cosmology, of course, which is uh, sure, sure, within which evolution is embedded. The evolution of, of, of if you like, of, of the the stars and and the uh, the elements uh, from stars explosions and, and so on. And that's what I meant by saying that we're having now this kind of globalization process of story, which create overarching 
global stories that subsume or digest, if you will, swallow up the smaller stories. Uh, but, but going back to the human story, whether we're talking about the evolutionary, uh, the, the Darwinian theory of evolution, or whether we're talking about the religious story, uh, and whether the perception of those is correct, accurate, or inaccurate, I would propose to you that the current human story consists of four main parts. Uh, and you correct me if, you, if I'm wrong or if you disagree with me. Uh, whether it's the theory of evolution or whether it's religion, the per first part is the story of progress, of us kind of uh, transcending our animalistic origins, of us kind of being in God's own image, therefore different. And in the religious story, the world was created to be our garden, and therefore ours for the taking. And in the evolutionary story, you know, we have that kind of transcendent movement of biological evolution, of intelligence, of being special, of being above kind of the other animals. We are those who can make tools, who can speak, who can tell stories, who can look into the future, etc., etc. So that's first first part, I would say, the story of progress. And the second part is the story of the supremacy and the centrality of humanity. Some people have said, whether Darwin meant it or not, some people have said, look, we are the pinnacle of evolution, right? We are the most intelligent species on our planet right now. Therefore, we're special. There is no one like us. Uh, the old religious story would tell us we're special because we're the only ones who have a soul, because we're the only ones who are in the image of God. But it's the same story what I'm trying to say here. Then the third part is the of, of that human story is the story of our separation from nature. And the question here is, are we a part of the world or are we apart from the world? And unfortunately, the common uh, sort of popular uh, presumption is that we are apart, we are separate from the world. We are, you know, different from the rest of nature, whether for divine reasons like us being in the image of God or whether for the fact that we are the pinnacle of evolution and the smartest species on our planet. So we're special, we're different, we're not like the rest of them. A very kind of uh, species in its core. And then finally, we have the pinnacle of that idea, which is perhaps given in transhumanism, um, which is very evolutionary and Darwinian in a way, uh, and epitomized by uh, quotes or little quips by people like Stuart Brandt, who says that we are already as powerful as gods, so we might as well behave as such and embrace that fact that we are gods now. And so the final part of that human story that I propose of this general narrative is the story of us becoming gods. This is kind of what transhumanism is also kind of about, whether through biological immortality, through life extension technology, genetic engineering, or whether through mind uploading uh, uh, and or other forms of artificial intelligence. So does how do you evaluate this kind of a story or narrative that I that I just gave you, does that make sense at all?
Well, certainly the, the very idea of progress, uh, which is so embedded in, in Western thinking these days, was was something uh, that, that was not natural at all to uh, to humans for for many thousands of years. Uh, the idea was much more often a, a story of decay. That the the origins, when we were closer to the gods, say, uh, were were much. Uh, a golden age that we've declined from. We're living in an age of lead. Um, um, I, I think um, I, I think there's, there's no doubt that we have made enormous progress in, in many things, but, but there's no reason to assume that that will continue. And we have to keep fighting in order to, to ensure that uh, the progress isn't whittled away by things like climate change or God forbid, nuclear war or whatever. Um, the idea of the, the centrality of humanity, I, I think that's been with us for a long time, that uh, that the gods, certainly in Christianity and the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, the um, God creating humans as very special in, in his own likeness, uh, that uh, has, has been there f for a long time before... Um, the evolution came into it, so uh, it's it's just uh, a part of our natural arrogance, I think. That and I, I imagine that any species is speciesist; that uh, they understand their own species, they want to engage with their own species, and uh, um, they don't really understand other species terribly well. Um, separation from nature, um, uh, I. I I don't think that, uh, well, it, evolution in, in a way is, is a story about our deep embeddedness in, in nature and um, <laughs> even even our our moral values, our, our, our capacity to to get beyond nature through through science is also an evolutionary story, an evolutionary evolutionary epistemological story, if you like. Um, it's um, um, I, I, I think uh, any kind of science will, will lead us back to the conclusion that we're uh, that we're a part of nature and, and, and also that we are apart from nature in that we can understand, uh, we can apply technology to transform nature. Um, as for transhumanism, um, well, I, I am very uncertain about what the future holds if, it, if we manage to survive our current crises, um, but I think it'll be unimaginable um, f f frankly um, any of the, th the the things you suggested could happen but uh, um, future forecasters tend to get it wrong nobody p predicted that the that uh, social media smartphones and, and so on would would arise and, and shape so much of what we do in 15 or 20 years. Uh, and, and Lord knows what the next invention will be that, that will suddenly transform the way we engage with one another. It's one of those things, though, that makes sense in retrospect, because in a way you could say social media is all about stories. Yeah. Right? It's about 
me trying to get in control of my own story that I kind of project in the world by creating this kind of fabricated profile with, with selected pictures, selected uh, snippets of my life and who I am and what I'm for about and kind of getting in charge or in control of our story while failing to recognize the, 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 the self-defeating kind of nature of this whole attempt within the framework that we're trying to accomplish it. But, but it, in a way, in retrospect, it makes sense in particular in the context of our conversation because at its core is, is about controlling the story where we are the protagonists, we are the main heroes. Yeah, um, it's, it's the kind of story I don't I don't want to get into. But uh, um, yeah, for for many people, it is very seductive, and that you you don't have to uh, you don't have to have to actually front up and engage with people in the real world in terms of the the kindness of your actions. There, uh, you can concoct a, 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 a projection of yourself uh, spreading out over the the entire world if if people are ready to follow you and those were designed by the way to hack our brains by hackers very deliberately and intentionally uh, due to the sort of neurochemistry of, of of how story works and how we get the dopamine hits and yeah. how we get hooked uh, and dependent uh, on more and more and more so they were cleverly designed to exploit and imitate and feed within the, the story neurobiology that we have, that we're wired for. Indeed, yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> Professor Boyd, uh, can I keep you for another 10 or 15 minutes by sure. any chance? Okay. Uh, because I'm trying to see what's kind of the final direction that we can steer our conversation towards and perhaps one attempt to make sense of it or perhaps not would be uh should we bring karl popper in this and see where he fits in this conversation about story or does he um Yes, in, in in some ways. So I'm writing a biography of Karl Popper, who's a, a philosopher of science and also a philosopher of uh, of politics, if you like, uh, in the open society and its enemies. Um, Popper was certainly he he was one of the founding evolutionary epistemologists, and he always stressed that that science grew out of myth. That without myth, there would not have been science. That that science emerged when people began to, when when one myth collided with another myth, and people began to critique their myths, and uh, and developed a, a tradition of critique. Um, so when the old myths fall apart, we have a revolution, and new myths take over, new stories take over. Yeah. Um, he, he was also somebody who was very, very skeptical about uh, the idea that we could predict the future. So uh, in, his, in the Open Society and its enemies, he talks about uh, both, both Plato and Hegel and after Hegel Marx um, trying to predict uh, a, a future 
for, for Plato was, was a future of decay that had to be arrested uh, by by holding things uh, as well by by instituting the the rule of the wisest, uh, which was pe people like him. Um, uh, sure. for, for Hegel and Marx, it was it was more a, an image of of the future, and Marx felt that he could confidently predict that the the increasing immiseration of, of the world under capitalism and that therefore uh, capitalism would collapse and, and socialism would and Marxism uh, communism would be inevitable um, and that that story of course inspired many in the uh, in the communist world or the communist movements uh, over the last uh, nearly two centuries and uh, of course it, the, the the story that he projected was uh, was falsified, if you like to use another Popperian term, um, by the the events of, of real life, where uh, immiseration was not the consequence of increasing capitalism. Uh, although we've got slack enough with capitalism these days that we're causing far more misery than we than it should. Well, but but that's kind of my point, and and Karl Popper actually came in very well, I think, because I grew up behind the Iron Curtain in Bulgaria. I was 14 years old when, when it collapsed. Um, and so in a way, you could say the 20th century was a clash of three stories, was capitalism, fascism, and communism. Fascism was the first one that kind of uh, was falsified, uh, hopefully at the end of World War II, even though there's remnants all over the world still, but mostly uh, marginal. Uh, same happened with communism, you could say, after 1989. And the collapse of the uh, kind of uh, the Eastern Bloc, the Warsaw Pact, and so on, the Soviet Union collapse. Uh, but then, and so then we had Francis Fukuyama who rushed quickly to declare the end of history because you see, capitalism is not only the best story we've ever told, but it was the best story that could ever be told. So from then on, it would be just more of the same story tweaked a little bit here and there, but largely the same. So therefore, end of history, you see. But I say that the last 20 years, the first 20 years of the 21st century have proven that the story of capitalism is falling apart. And therefore, we need to rewrite the human story once again. And just as you pointed out, science, the, the origins of science, as Popper said, is embedded in myth, or as I would say, story. And every time you had the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, you had one story replacing another story, right? And right now we're in this myth gap. Right now we're in this kind of a global vacuum where you don't have a dominant story. We have a bunch of stories clashing but you don't have a sufficiently powerful story that gives us direction, that creates impetus for collective action at a sufficiently large enough global scale that would aggregate to make a sufficient difference. And that's why, that's hence my impetus to write a book called Rewriting the Human Story, how our story determines or at least frames our future. Uh, and, and in a sense, I totally am following Karl Popper's kind of idea, if you will. Am I not? Uh, well, certainly we can, we can reframe things. Yes, or a framework. Can, yeah. Uh, try, try to reframe them. I and mean, he, he was very insistent that, uh, that a kind of 
pessimistic uh, reading of the future was was uh, self self fulfilling almost that uh, that we needed to have a, an optimistic outlook on things to have the determination to make the changes that we we could make but those changes were going to lead to uh, always going to lead to unintended consequences and to to a muddle that would every attempted solution would create new problems um, and uh, problems that that we can't really anticipate until we start to put these attempted solutions into effect so uh, we're, we're I think we're always going to have uh, a series of muddles and, and crises to, to contend with in, in ways that we can't foresee. Was it Fred Pollack who said that, after evaluating all the greatest empires, said that empires died of, die of suicide, not of murder? Mm -hmm. And and perhaps you could say the same about, quote, the, the human empire as as a civilization, perhaps, and 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 Uh, speaking of the, the importance of that positive story, let me bring a quote here that comes to my mind here. This is Fred Pollack writing in 1961. He says, quote, Any student of the rise and fall of cultures cannot fail to be impressed by the role played in this historical succession by the image of the future. The rise and fall of images precede or accompany the rise and fall of cultures. As long as a society's image is positive and flourishing, the flower of culture is in full bloom. Once the image begins to decay and lose its vitality, however, the culture does not long survive. I mean, I, I do feel that the, the, the bloom has certainly gone off uh, the United States of America, um, that uh, the, the self-confidence that drove it so powerfully since uh, the 18th century has, uh, has really vanished. Um, and I, I hope things don't turn out as darkly as some of the clouds uh, on the horizon are suggesting. And the same could be said for the Western world in general, because we tend to underplay or undervalue our accomplishments of democracy and perhaps overfocus on its failings rather than its accomplishments, and therefore fail to properly appreciate the benefits versus the cost. You know, I grew up in communism, so and I became Canadian by choice, not by birth. So for me, it's very obvious and very precious, and I'm very much aware of what I have because I didn't have it for a very long time, and I had to fight to get it, to struggle to get it. But most people around me, it seems, uh, in the West, kind of take it for granted and and. And, and now don't see the benefits as much as the costs and, and the problems. Um, and, and that's why I say that we need this new image, this new story, uh, this new revolution that could be triggered by a new myth or a new story, as, or a myth, as, as Popper would say. Yes, well, that, that's, uh, that's something that... Uh other people have been working on too. Stephen Pink is trying to been trying to make us realize that our story is actually one of incredible progress over the last few centuries. Uh, I'm not quite sure how you are going to do it, but I look forward to seeing what you do and then and perhaps inspiring <laughs> making the world uh, letting loose a, a virus that that will uh, cure us all rather than uh, sicken us all. Yeah. 
a, a good story is an idea virus, exactly. And that, that's how you measure how good is it by how viral it is. Because when someone hears a good story, if they turn around, if they can't help but turn around and tell that story to the next person they see, that's how you know you have a good story. And, you know, uh, that happened to me back in the day when I first read about stories such as the technological singularity and artificial intelligence. And it took me many years to realize that those are not the best stories we have and we should have for a number of reasons and they have big problems. It took me a long time to realize that, unfortunately. But that that's happened today with other people, with, with Bitcoin or with the internet back in the day. And I'm not saying those are good or bad stories. I'm just saying that it has happened to many of us. We've experienced it. Now we just need to find one that unites us to address our problems, our, our civilization-wide global, global problems. But anyway, let's bring our conversation to an end here because I feel like uh, it's becoming a monologue and that's definitely not a good idea or my intention at all. So let me ask you this, Professor Boyd, where can people find more about you and your work? Um, there's a well, you Google me um, Wikipedia, or there's a uh, on the University of Auckland website. You can find me and my, my some of my story. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that I'm curious in all sorts of different directions. So there are many people who know my literature and art and evolution work who don't really connect with my uh, my work on Nabokov which is, is quite quite different uh, and my 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 work on Popper mostly hasn't been published yet but uh, um, I I was I was I mentioned to you my uh, involvement in uh, a, an art exhibition on the origin of art um, in there, Tasmania the, yes the the director and founder of the Museum of Modern of, of Old and, and New Art um, happened to be a Nabokov, keen Nabokov fan and a keen fan of evolution, and he so he he didn't realise that the two Brian Boyds were, were the same Brian Boyd. I would say very few people would, and I kind of underplayed that that part of your biography, which is a major part, which you touched on uh, with the fact that you very early in your life had kind of this kind of a. Uh, interest, keen interest in in Nabokov's work, uh, so 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 that's 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 absolutely phenomenal that you have these kind of two dimensions to you among many others. But what's one question about stories today that I should have asked you and I never did? Well. I don't know that it's it's one that you should have asked me, but when you put this question to me, uh, it come it comes to mind. Some people try to claim that there are a, a limited number of stories, a limited number of plots, and uh, I find so there there are seven basic plots, there are five basic plots, there are thirty five basic plots. <laughs> the, the the number is d depends on who's telling the story, um, but it, it seems to me that stories are uh, infinitely recombinable. Uh, they can they can. It, it's like language itself. There's there's no limit to the number of sentences that can be said in in even in in just one language, and there's no limit to the the number of stories that can be told. Wow, and then. 
would that lead us to kind of perhaps the best way to wrap our conversation up? In other words, what in your opinion is the best message that, that you want to send us away with? How we, we talked, we touched on so many things and I, I'm not sure if I did a good job of kind of like directing our conversation today because there are so many ideas. How can we make sense of it or, or send our audience today with a single message that kind of wraps it up in the best way possible in your view? Well, the, the, the predicament we're in is, is complicated. There will, there will always be new complications that we can't foresee, but on the other hand, um, without uh, a confidence in the future, without a, a sense that we can make a difference to our own story, uh, we won't get anywhere. So we, if, if, if we keep trying, we'll, we'll keep discovering new problems, but we will also be able to solve many at least provisionally. And uh, I, I think we shouldn't be disheartened about the complexity of the problems that we face. So don't be disheartened about the complexity of problems that you face because there's an infinite number of stories that we can draw upon to help us resolve those? I, well, I, I, I think uh, stories are very good at... Uh, at feeding us information, but they can't cope with the complexities of the unknowns of, of the next five or ten years. So you know, we don't. We, we're going to have to grapple in in the uh, the, the the shifting present with uh, complications that stories in the past will be a partial guide to. But we also have to make our own decisions. Partly, you know in the unknown, um, and uh, uh, it, it's always going to be difficult. But I think uh, I think the idea that there was a, a simpler time when, when stories provided, the stories of religions, they provided uh, clarity about everything you did, I think they're slightly mythical, that things have always seemed complicated to people in the present. Retrospectively, they, they, we can see what happened, that disasters didn't occur and so on, and uh, that, that we were totally unnecessarily fearful of these disasters. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're always going to be in, in a very, very complicated situation, but we can win through. Professor Boyd, thank you very much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation.